Hello there and welcome to Talking Flutes this week with me, Jean-Paul Wright. A big shout out to our fabulous Talking Flutes podcast sponsors, TJ Flutes. Please can you show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes or Facebook at Trevor James Flutes. Today we're looking back at one of Claire's favourite podcasts recorded in 2019 with the brilliant musician Wissam Bustani entitled For the Love of the Flute. It's a longer than usual podcast but I can assure you it's well worth the listening time. My great friend of 40 years since being at college together, an inspirational musician and humanitarian. So hello Wiz. Hi, it's been a long time. It's been a long time, but lovely to see you and for you to make the journey here on your lovely motorbike. Yeah, it's a beautiful sunny It is a sunny day. day, I know. It's always sunny here in Hove. <laughs> so let me give our listeners a quick resume of your life and then we'll have a good old chat okay. about it. So there are four very important aspects to Wiesam's career. At least. Yeah, at least. Flutist, teacher, composer, more recently conductor. He's achieved so much as an orchestral musician and soloist, developing a wonderful duo partnership with pianist Alexander Schramm. Amazing audiences, by the way, they both perform from memory, something I've never seen before, bringing a completely heightened experience and intensity into their adventurous music making. Wilsam has been a flute professor at Trinity Laban London and the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester, where we both studied. Mm. And more recently, Wiesam has also ventured into composing. His experiences of the war in Lebanon have greatly influenced his outlook on both life and music, developing an intensity, commitment, deep sadness and spirituality that filter into the sound of his flute. In 1995, he founded Towards Humanity, an international initiative working with musicians and charities helping communities to suffer from the tragedies of war. This project was inaugurated in February 1995 at the Royal Abbott Hall in London, followed in 1997 by a knighthood from the Lebanese government in recognition of his music and peace work. And 1998, he was presented with the Crystal Award at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. During his late teens, Wissam's stepfather, flute teacher and musical mentor at the time, Emil Nune, told him something he would never forget. The flute is too small for you. I see you as a conductor one day. Well, that day is here now, and Wiesam has formed a new orchestra called Pro Youth Philharmonia, which has just given its first concert series in the UK. So, wow, Wiesam, where do we start? I think we can end here. (laughs) (laughs) What a a CV. Fantastic. So many different elements to your life. Well, it's just happened. Uh, I follow my heart, uh, and um, that's where that's led me. And, um, yeah, if, uh, if you follow your heart, uh, you wind up doing the things that you believe in and want to do. Simple, really. Sounds very simple. Mm. When did you first come to the UK? I was 17, so that was uh, the middle of the war in Beirut. Uh, we had tried to leave the war on several occasions I came we came for three months before that when I was 15 I went to the Purcell school for three months they went back things got worse we left again for Quebec and Canada for nine months things got better we moved back and then it got even worse 
And that's when my parents said, enough, you go to England and you study there. I became a boarder at Cheatham School of Music. I did my A-levels there. Yes, I remember well, because you used to turn up at the flute classes at at, uh, the Northern uh, and sit and listen and occasionally play. And it was Very a, occasionally, but it was definitely my listening to you. I remember very distinctly the you just sticking into the Khachaturian concert, the first movement, in a class, and I had never heard anything like it. Oh, that's nice for you to say. I, I, remember, I remember learning that because I was performing it in London, and I, I, I feel terrible now because I can't remember who with. And it's... I mean, you know, because you've recorded the Cacciatore, and it was an exhausting concerto is, but how incredible is that music? Mm, Just fantastic. Yeah. So you have recorded it? I have recorded it. With Where the, can people Ukraine. hear it? Uh, it's on CD, uh, Nimbus Records have released it, and it's on Spotify and iTunes. And fantastic. And, yeah. and also then, if people want to know more about you, they can look at your website. What's that address? Yeah, uh, web, my, I've got two websites now, one for the orchestra and one for me. Um, so, uh-huh. and the orchestra is profil.org.uk. Uh, Great. Okay. So, you came to the UK and went to Cheatham School of Music, and then you entered the Royal Northern. Mm. And then, when you graduated, what happened then? When I graduated from Manchester, I moved down to London. Uh, at that time, my stepsisters were living and studying here at the Academy and at the Royal College. We lived together for a while, and I had, soon after that, by that time, I was playing the Chamber Orchestra of Europe. Yeah. And that was my passport into many, many good situations. And uh, I did my big Mohol debut soon after, a couple of years after leaving Manchester. So uh, at that time, I was building... Uh, Probably what you would describe as your typical freelance career, hoping to get employed by various orchestras. Uh, but for me, the Chamber Orchestra of Europe was the orchestra for me, and um, because of Claudio Abado and uh, c- conducting the LSO, I wound up freelancing with the LSO a little bit and a few other London Bach Orchestra and other, but uh, the London soloists. Yes. Um, But for me, the COE was the the thing that I loved. But even that couldn't hold me for much longer. I felt I needed to leave and uh, play the flute on my own terms. So you felt restricted by the orchestral environment? Uh, Restricted is one word. I also felt um, concerned about... The people around me, uh, people reading newspapers, uh, when instead of, you know, when counting sixty bars rest, and at that time there were no mobile phones. Mm-hmm. Imagine now. Um, I just felt that uh, the atmosphere of kind of politics and cynicism and jealousies, and I could see it pushing me into a way of living in a way of behaving that I didn't want to be part of. Uh, And I think um, a lot of people, when I left orchestra, said, well, Wissam is an arrogant person. I mean, is he any better than us? Why why should he be a soloist? Uh, uh, 
I really didn't do it to show off. I really felt that um, I needed time for myself so that I could let the music that I felt needed to come out have the space to come out. And of course, to create the space to practice in a way that would allow it to come out. Because I really feel that too many of us are trying to do too many things. And uh, for me, a soloist is not just playing a concerto. It's a way of living. It's a way of preparing music in a way. And I felt I I needed to live up to that. And I did that, and I never regretted it. Uh, Probably had I stayed in orchestras, I might have five or six more CDs to my name. Uh, But I don't think I'd have been able to develop the kind of personal... Uh, what sort brand, if you like, to my flute playing, had I not given myself the space and time to do that. Yes, it's interesting how how so many people, when they leave the environment of, of a conservatoire, yeah. if they have put in enough work, that they can evolve into something that's far more individual. And that's what you did. You've always been very creative and you've you've not gone with the norm you've actually tried to find your own path well everyone tries to do that with hindsight in their own way and um, uh, it's just that during the formative years we really it really does get drummed into us that uh, pretty much the only career path is the orchestral path absolutely uh, absolutely uh, yeah. and and there's so much more to music than that it is one of the greatest paths and certainly the music is on such a high level. But uh, there are so many different ways to experience uh, and receive and give music besides the orchestral path. And I think um, trying to force that and everyone down that path almost uh, denies people their own space and, uh, and pathway into discovering what makes them tick too soon, you know, and you before you know it, you after every orchestral audition, uh, and then you you feel a failure if you don't don't quite manage that. Well, I think that's the that's the problem. I think a lot of a lot of musicians feel they failed if they haven't gained that orchestral position, and yet there's so much more to music. Yeah. And both you and I have have managed to sort of forge a career that's on right. many different aspects of, of music yeah. not just the or, the orchestral side of things which as you said is fantastic but yeah. there's so many other fantastic things mm. it's interesting you talked about um being restrained almost if you maybe are just going through that uh, orchestral path um i often feel that that you know when we audition students for college mm. we we pick students who show so much potential and then often feel that during their four years or three years or five years at college, we actually sort of squash that creativity in order to get them playing to a particular level. And they lose that. They lose that creativity. It'd be lovely to find a, a, different, a different way. Yes, wouldn't the, yeah, all those requirements that college uh, hurdles. And of course, it's like a funnel uh, everyone has to pass those hurdles at yes. the same time, whereas every person is different and has their own time to respond to life and 
to understand themselves. And yet we insist on funneling everyone down that system. Yeah, that it's, same uh, way. Yeah, that same way. It's, it's, I don't think it's done maliciously on purpose, but those systems are counterproductive. Yeah. And as a teacher, I'm constantly at odds with the system trying to... Yes, uh, which brings us into your... You have a method called love in yeah. terms of your teaching, That's which right. addresses just what we've been talking about. I hope so. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your approach in teaching. It is so simple that uh, some people might laugh at it. Uh, I really feel, uh, I often talk to students when they first come, and uh, trying to elicit a discussion about why they love the flute, what it is they want to do with their music, you know. Um, because I've always f- felt that the, there are two, two big questions. is how to play the flute and why you play the flute. And too often we gravitate around how to play the flute, whereas the why behind something is a much bigger question. It's the motivating question. Uh, so if your motivation is on a very high level, then probably that's going to influence the how of how you play the flute. So I often ask students, so if there was one word you would like to take away with you, you were only allowed to take one word with you and throw away everything else, what would that word be? And for me, it's the word love. Because uh, love uh, is the state of being where we become bigger than ourselves. We sensitize ourselves to ourselves and to other people. Love is where respect lies. Love is where motivation lies. And love is where discipline lies, ultimately. So if you really live the word love with the people you're with, in every moment, whether you're playing the flute or not, you are in touch with the single most powerful motivating force. And um, if you apply it to every aspect of moving your finger or you, or how you move your lip or what is it you're searching in a sound or what you're dedicating your music to in life, and uh, uh, if you use that that love as like a light that you shine on any challenge, uh, any uh, um, it transforms it the challenge, and it uh, transforms your ability as a person to to overcome those challenges. Um, and I know from my own playing when my love deserts me, I'm nothing. It's just a sound. But when the love is there, something happens. Something transformative happens, and what seems like a sound becomes an experience, becomes a feeling, an emotion that can change life. I really believe that, and I want that to be in every moment of contact with music. So that's why I call it a method called love. It's a, it's, it's a way of working. Yes. Just like you pick up an exercise and you see the method of Marcel Moise or the method of Claire Southworth, for me, the method of love in all its simplicity. 
And that's that must be quite hard because I, I, you know, when you think about students yeah. working hard to yeah. achieve with all the the pressures on them to achieve, and you know, in practice, sometimes things don't go well. Yeah. It's very difficult to love what you're doing when you're struggling to achieve. So sometimes that sense of tr- trying to achieve actually stops you in your tracks. Yes, it does, and that uh, it, uh, you have to kind of figure out a way. Uh, when, when you can't achieve something, that something becomes your enemy. Hmm. It's stopping you from what you want. So, uh, to me, that's at the heart of technique. Hmm. Uh, when you're, a Technique, for me, is not training muscles. It's training attitudes. And training mind. Training the mind. Mind hmm. over matter. Exactly. Hmm. So, uh, you, 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 you hit a wall... Uh, of course you're going to get frustrated, but if you dig around it and start understanding why you hit the wall, what is it about your way of thinking that's caused that wall to happen, you start to unravel the challenge and understand it and almost begin to love it for what it's teaching you. Which leads us into two very important aspects of your teaching and your playing, improvisation and memory. Yes, those are like what I say. If I have two legs to stand on, those are my two legs, memory and improvisation. Personally, I think that that has to start really from a very early early age. didn't with me. No? No. I didn't start improvising until we left college. Uh, Trevor used to tell us to to improvise, but I couldn't respond to that because we had to stand in a circle uh, uh, and there was some kind of harmony or rhythm that was imposed and I couldn't relate to it. Yes, I remember, I remember those sessions. I couldn't uh, relate I, to it, it either. It felt like a test. Was, I felt very self-conscious. It was, it, was a, it was a test. But I remember when I first um, got my first ever flute that the first thing I did was improvise, but I didn't know it was improvisation. And the first tune I ever played was Jethro Tell Living in the Past, because I'd heard it on the radio. And so I played without music and used my ears, and it was wonderful. And then, of course, you start formal lessons, and you're given a book, and you play from the book, and you have to get things right. It's not about uh, music and emotion and communicating. It's about correctness. And unfortunately, I think that continues right the way through till people leave college, and it takes quite a strong character to realise that that's happened and then yeah. move away from that. You, you, you've hit it on the head, but you've also... Uh, everything you do, before you do something new, it seems like an impossible task. How many times have we confronted that in our lives? From childhood... Um, and yet, once you do it once or twice, the door is open and you can continue to do it. But that to overcome that initial block that I don't play for memory or I don't memorize, yeah. you, you convince yourself that every time you say you can't do something, you convince yourself that you can't do it until you try. Once you try to do something, you're on the winning side of yourself. And that happens moment by moment. Everything in life, uh, from 
getting into a college to deciding on a long-term relationship or getting married or getting divorced or moving house or changing career or uh, doing something new is daunting. And yet we, we move on in life. And once you've opened that door, you don't look back. And those moments are the formative moments of our life. And if we get used to backtracking and just sticking to what we know, how do we grow? And that's something no teacher can teach you. That's something you do out of your desire to grow. And that's, that's a really important point, that I think it has to come from the individual, yeah. has to want to do it yeah. themselves. And I think that when you're being so highly trained week after week where you have to present certain elements of, of, of technique and Well, I'll give you an things. example, Claire. I mean, I mean, I'm the person who pro- probably people are sick of me talking about memorizing. And, uh, but I hate it when college tells you for your third year you have to learn something from memory. What a killjoy that is. What a killjoy. What a killjoy. That's not any motivation when you're forced to do something. It has to become the culture. It has to become for every lesson, for every... uh, For for, for the the love for it needs to be uh, shown, proved uh, for people to want to do it. But to force someone to do it? No, it's just another trap. Yeah, it's an obstacle trap. or a hurdle to jump through. I, I also at college, my first year exam, there were two of us, we were told two days before the exam, oh, by the way, from memory. Two days? Two days before. And I thought, I, I didn't understand. I didn't know, because I had not done that before, yeah. I remember playing, the. I got the first two notes wrong <laughs> because I was so worried about it. And luckily, there was someone on the panel there who was very sensible and wise and said, it's okay, you can use the music. Uh And then, because they could tell that I was having such a problem. And that sort of scarred me Uh for many, many years. And it wasn't until I left college when I started to do it for myself, but in a very controlled, not controlled way, in a very relaxed way. Forgiving way. Forgiving way. And that you you learn how to, to work through it and to That's enjoy exactly it. exactly, you've said, what, what I say, it's not what you do, it's why you do it. The, the reason why it worked for you finally is that because you were in touch with the why, whereas when something is forced on you and you're not in touch, uh, convinced yeah. in your heart that you're doing something that's going to open you up instead of trap you and demolish you and make you fearful yeah. uh, and certainly I always say you know if you if you fear something you're never going to to really do uh, do that thing well that you need to be nerves are good you know the anticipation yeah, of something but I, I agree not and disagree fear. I agree and disagree if you said if you fear something what did you say if you fear something if you fear something you don't necessarily do it well if you're fearful yes, of what's of but if you that, that could be that that uh, anything that scares us we avoid you don't really mean that i didn't mean that no so what do you but mean but it's when you when you have to do something right. when you have to uh, so for an exam you have to to play a piece of memory because that's what it's that's what's written down but you don't have the tools with which to do it, yeah. there's a different fear. That's right. Um, which means that you probably will fail. And yeah. that is very damaging for you mm. mentally. 
And so you actually have to find your own way of working through that fear yeah. uh, so that you, you overcome it and you suppress it and understand, and it, and understand what's, what's it. causing it. Like understanding nerves. If you understand nerves and how it affects you, yeah. they become your friend. They don't become your exactly. enemy. Exactly. They become their motivator. Yeah. Yeah. How did you manage to persuade your accompanist, Alexandra, to play the piano parts for memory? Well, there's a short answer and there's a long answer, but I think I need to give you the long answer. Okay. Uh, because sometimes the seed of something hap uh, kind of gestates and doesn't actually grow until a long time later. Once I was on tour in South America with the Australian pianist Piers Lane. You must know him from the Academy. Yes. Uh, um, and we were touring two programs, and one night in the Peruvian, the British Embassy in Peru, we were doing a concert. I played a piece by Dave Heath. Uh, I think I played some Donizetti or something, and then we ended the program with the Frank Sonata. And we were just about to go on for the last piece. And Piers said, you know, I've played this Frank with violins and violas and cellos and flutes for so many years. I'm sure I, could, I know it. I said, go for it. That's and scary. On the, on the spur of the moment, just there and then, we just went out and played the Frank Sonata without the music, both of us. Were you already going I to was, do it without the music? I, I, I've always played without the music since I was 28, 6, 7. Hmm. Uh, but I'd never gone on stage with the pianist not playing with the music. And I can honestly tell you that, that something happened, that the, the way we connected to each other. Because when both of you are playing on an equal level... Both of you could fall at any point. So the way you play has to be so convincing that mm. you protect the other person from losing confidence. Yeah. So both of you could fall at any point. Like being on a tightrope. We're both, the same thing at stake for both of us. Yes. And I'd never experienced that before. Mm. He's a very good pianist. Uh, and I was always playing from memory. But there was something unequal about it. Um... And that was the first time we played where every note had like, the notes had umbilical cords attached to them between us. Mm -hmm. And the tempo was right, the balance was right, the, the, the energy levels kind of became cohesive. And then, of course, Piers is very busy. And years later, I met uh, Alex. And uh, as a student first, accompanying exams, um, eventually he wound up playing for my classes at Trinity. And, and then the first time I heard him improvise, I saw a side of him that I had not seen before. And then that's when we started talking, and I said, I've always wanted someone that would be willing to memorize recitals with me. He said, I'll do it. And we never looked back since. I remember hearing you do that for the first time. Uh, with Alexander and I remember sitting in the audience feeling very nervous yes that's been said before once or twice um, and I think it's because it was so new that never seen that before you know wanting you to be able to to do it and not wanting you to fall 
Yeah, but remember that you're not the normal audience. You're a flute player and you know what it takes. The normal audience doesn't even notice that there's a music stand there or not. They don't notice. They're just going to hear. And they might not even notice that you had or didn't have the music stand. But you, because you, you know how difficult it is, hmm. you're projecting that onto the situation yeah. a little bit. But there was a completely different feel to that sort of concert. More of a sense of freedom of sort of being more more creative, more inspirational with what you're trying to say. It felt like maybe you, you because you take the music away, you have to listen so much better. So there was a completely different atmosphere in that concert, which I also hadn't experienced before. Well, I'm glad. I must say, uh, just to qualify that, memorising can have some negative effects too, if I'm to be honest with you. Yep, and I've heard a lot of that too. Yeah, like, uh, you, you see, what it's great at is giving you structure and consolidation. And The thing is, um, you become so consolidated that you can lose some spontaneity. Mm. Yes, but you're different. I mean, for you, it works fantastically well. The, the times when I've heard it doesn't work well is when people have just learned a piece note by note without any feel for the emotion behind the music or any feel for the phrasing, and it's just an exercise in learning, yeah. not an exercise in communicating. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to actually help a student understand that you still need to communicate and to get in touch with the music rather than learn by rote. That's right. And that's where love comes into it. Yeah, so that's, that's the difference. That's what you do differently. So I think when you're trying to encourage students to play without the music, it's very important how you approach it. Yeah. And, and to allow them to fail, mm. that it's not a problem. That's right. Um, and so you nurture that, the beginnings, and you help them blossom rather than criticise right. for not doing it. It's difficult. It's difficult to get right. It's difficult. It's about having a sense of priorities because there are all kinds of mistakes we make. What is it that you want to give in a recital? Perfection? Yeah, obviously not. Obviously not. Obviously not. First of all, perfection, perfection is overrated, uh, not to mention doesn't exist. The beauty of life is in its imperfect. There's nothing symmetrical about life. There's nothing. Uh, there's, there's something perfect about life. It's perfect in its imperfection. Uh, and uh, uh, to understand that as a human being and learn to look beyond imperfection and see the beauty in life and people in spite of things that annoy us from time to time or um, you need to have a very strong sense of priority but what's what music means to you what you want to give with it and then once that pressure is gone then you get closer to perfection hmm. because that fear of making mistake disappears to a large extent which is what often causes mistakes in the first place yeah I, I find that a lot of, big generalisation, but a lot of the, yeah. the players that are coming out of colleges now are not in touch with their emotional being and not in touch with the music enough. And it's a case of getting things right, getting the pitch right, the notes right, the rhythm right, getting everything correct. Yeah. Um, and I know I've often disagreed with people on panels when, you know, you know judging, judging people either in final recitals or auditions, in that for me... 
in terms of criteria, my first criteria is always that emotional connection, the emotional meaning. Does somebody talk to me? Do they speak to me through mm-hmm. their music? Not whether they got it right. That's right. But that doesn't often happen, unfortunately. Unfortunately, it doesn't. It, this, this, uh, I thousand percent agree with you. I think often it doesn't happen because feelings are personal. So what works for one person on an emotional level might grate with another person. So the easiest way to agree on a panel is on things like getting it right and intonation and kind of... uh, It can be relatively, even though intonation is very subjective. uh, uh, But it's easier to agree on those things than on interpretation. Um, And of course there are different styles of playing that are very personal. Um, so on juries, uh, well, music should never have become a competition in the first place. No, but it does have to be judged in some way in for some people way. to of course. A- achieve their diplomas and degrees. And yeah. So yeah. That it, there, there has to be a place for it. Yeah. But as I think there was only one panel I ever sat on where there was another very well-known flute player who would say things like, I don't like that style of playing but I really appreciate what they're doing. I understand what they're doing. Uh, You know, I love their musicality. It's not what I do, but I recognise what they're doing. And then would give a mark that uh, that responded to that. Respecting. Yes, rather than saying, I I don't don't play that, so I don't like that, so no mark. I've always tried to fight in college. I didn't succeed because uh, college likes to have, like, a system of grading and that's consistent across all instruments. Although they always make an exception for singers for some reason. Like with scales. Yeah. We're, we're, we have to have a certain way of playing scales. Yes. Singers are at the northern, I remember, don't have that system. Mm. They're allowed uh, to choose what suits their voice. I respect that's that a good. lot. But I've always... You know how they have a box for technique, a box for yes. presentation, a box for musicality? Yes. I've always wanted a box for risk taking, mm. where it's a box that, uh, or or memory, because for me, memorizing represents taking that extra risk, yeah. where you're willing to fall down completely for the sake of living up to the higher dimension. And uh, I've always wished that, that without forcing people to memorize in an exam situation. You offered them a bonus. Yeah, that's really interesting you say that because we it, at uh, my conservatoire there was there's a, a concerto exam, which is from memory. Okay. And if you don't play from memory, if you suddenly think the day before I can't do this, you have ten percent taken off. Taken off. And I always say, wouldn't it be wonderful, is if you have your exam and if you play from memory, you get. Ten percent added, well, and uh, that is your motivation. Exactly, exactly. So you you mark the grade. Someone gets say a, a sixty eight, and automatically, if someone plays with a conviction and risk taking, you get rewarded two or three grades, um, whether you fail or not. That's the point. Yeah. So you might make a mistake or two, but the fact that you took a risk gets acknowledged. I think that to me, but it was never taken up. It was seen as too uh, uh, 
difficult to manage, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we have to start our, our own course, Rissa, <laughs> and put these things into place. <laughs> but anyway, that's, you know, there's obviously memory is a huge part, improvisation that's the a huge other part. Now, the, the, what I wanted to remind you about was that many years ago, you were, I heard you play on a BBC programme, a live programme, Pebble Mill at One. And you did an improvisation. It was stunning. And I thought, wow, I've never heard, I've never heard him play that. I don't know what it is. It was, your, it was your own. Do you remember what it was? Did you ever write it down? No. So it was just an on the spur of the moment? Yeah, quite often on TV, you, uh, they, they ask you to, or on radio, uh, uh, you've got a very, the program has to end exactly at six o'clock. Mm. And then there's a bit of a gap, and quite often this is the, the easy thing to do because syrinx lasts two minutes, yep. 22 seconds. If You can't speed it up. <laughs> but with an improvisation, you can tailor music to end exactly when it needs to. I just tell them, just give me a sign 30 seconds from the end. And then I can wind down. But this was a beautifully structured improvisation. Oh, I don't know. It had a, a, a wonderful sort of a beginning, a middle and an end. It felt, it felt complete. So maybe, maybe you need to go back to the BBC and ask, <laughs> ask the listener and then, and then write it down because it was absolutely beautiful. Well, that's when I first started improvising. That's what I wanted uh, um, to give a sense of travelling and conclusion. Yeah. And if you can understand that, every piece we play has that in it, yeah. that, that journey. And if that journey doesn't happen, I don't think we've really played with any sense of depth or meaning, mm. really. We've just played the notes. So do you still use improvisation in concerts? Oh, yeah. Uh, last year, um, I, I, had, I was under a lot of pressure. You know, I've had two knee operations in the last year. I only had one. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I've had quite a crazy year, but uh, so I didn't uh, and I didn't feel motivated to learn new music. So I lent on repertoire that I knew well. I played the Frank Sonata, and I started the concert with a Doppler, Doppler Hungarian uh, fantasy. And Scotty and me went out in the middle and improvised for ten minutes, and that was my my adventure for the night. Uh, ten minutes, we didn't agree on what note to start, what key to play in, what fasts, nothing. We just walked on with a completely open slate and played for about ten minutes. It's, it's a real roller coaster. I'm sure. It wakes up the senses so much. I mean, you have to be so alert to catch the, any half opportunity and make it work, you know. Um, I love that. I love that it wakes up the senses like nothing. Certainly not like Heineken does. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have you got perfect pitch? Uh, I think I have relative pitch. So if I if if I hear a note, if I translate it into the, a flute sound, yes, I can probably guess the pitch. That's that's similar with me too. I can if I if I think of the beginning of a of a well known flute piece, I've got the pitch of. Of a yeah, particular I can note. sense the color from yeah. the color of the yeah. note. Yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. I think what we're going to do. Mm. So should we start with the orchestra? <laughs> okay. Where do you want to start from? Well, what's this? What's the name? 
Oh, the name is the Pro Youth Philharmonia. And how did this come about? Wow. Uh, again, there's a short answer and there's a long answer. Um, uh, I've led from the flute on occasion. Um, but uh, about four years ago, I was invited on a residency to, uh, to Aust the Australian National Academy uh, of Music, ANAM, in Melbourne. Uh, it was my third or fourth visit, and the the residency was based on all of Poulenc's chamber music, and I got to coach all kinds of groups. And they said, we'd like to end the concert with Obad, Poulenc's um, piano concerto for piano and I think 18, 18 instruments. Yeah, it's a small group, isn't it? Of course, yeah, but it packs a punch. Yes. Uh, would you like to conduct it? what uh my my instinct was to say no not really i'm happy for someone else to do it but then i so well why not you know why not chance to talk about the method called love to non-flute players and just do something new and that experience was woke me up i came back home after the tour and um, told her, me and my wife about it and she said you've got to follow this through why don't you study it? So I did. I've been studying conducting for two, to about two years. Uh, and then it came to the point where I had to decide, okay, how does that translate from being a student to conducting properly? Properly, what I mean is, how do you evolve from student to professional yeah. conductor? And that's when my past came flooding back. Yes, Chamber and that Oxford. wonderful quote from your stepfather, the flute is too small for you, I see you as a conductor one day. That's one of the things. You even going to, even, I was talking about the European Union Youth Orchestra, oh, okay. Claudio Abado. Mm -hmm. uh, he was my absolute hero. I had never played with a conductor so inspiring, so natural, so empathetic, so moving who made it look so easy and all those memories of him came flooding back and i know that the reason for his success besides his talent uh, was that he formed youth orchestras he worked with them he worked with the passion in young people and he rehearsed on his terms and that's how he built up his repertoire, his confidence, his, 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 his brand of conducting, mm. and then uh, went on to conduct the best orchestras in the world. I know in my heart that's how he did it. So um, I decided to do the same. Not because I'm Claudio Bado, but because uh, I'm following a passion and a love that is most uh, fertile and ready in young people because they're still open to it and they're still experiencing music uh, uh, for the first time in many repertoire for the first time so I uh, two years ago I decided that that's what I'm going to do and bit by bit it's grown and before we knew it last month it happened <laughs> It's extraordinary because, I mean, it's, it's wonderful that you have the ideas, but actually to put it into practice, this is a huge venture. I mean, 
You told me earlier that you auditioned every single member of the orchestra. Every single member was heard by me alone. Uh, not because I'm a megalomaniac, but because I, there's a message behind the orchestra. In fact, if you see the logo, it's Pro Youth Philharmonia, and underneath it is written a method called love. What we were talking about two so weeks So it ties ago. in with it, your message you've been giving have, through your teaching and playing. I have not changed. Mm -hmm. uh, my heart is the same. What I want from music is the same. Um, my flute is my oldest friend. Uh, so I, I look through life. I look at life through it. It's my filter. It's my question of life. It's, it's how I'm inspired. Uh, but if you're not willing to move on and nurture that love, if love isn't nurtured, it dies. And if I'm to be honest with you, I've been feeling that a little bit in my flute playing over the last years. I can somehow motivate myself, but deep down, instinctively, I'm feeling that I need to nurture the love. Mm. I need new aims. I need something new in my life to, to push me to a new horizon. Because if I'm not at that place, I'm decaying. So do you find that then that by doing something slightly different or very different... It's it not feeds. as different as it may seem. No, but it feeds the other aspects Absolutely. of your career. Absolutely. I'm, yeah. I'm motivated again. When I come back to my flute, I love it again for its mm. simplicity. Yeah. For, the, for its immediacy. I mean, I don't have to negotiate with anyone except myself uh, mm -hmm. uh, and my muscles. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a direct, uh, direct uh, uh, transition of idea into physicality. With an orchestra, there's a delay and there's 70 people to convince. But that's a challenge in itself. But actually, uh, as we were talking before, what was... Um, the translation into air and uh, fingers and connecting with the sound of the flute has uh, now become how I uh, analyze the gestures and what they mean uh, for as a conductor. Uh, the subtlety of the gestures, the breathing is actually the beginning of the gesture. So armed with 40 years of playing the flute i've got all that that i'm digging into to inform the gestures mm. so i'm i'm in a way i'm being as true to myself as i possibly can trying to um find a new reality out of something that i've believed in for so so long and what are... it's like a, a snake that changes its skin every seven years it stays the same snake yeah, and what our listeners can't see is that when you talk, you have all the gestures and all the facial expressions <laughs> that will, I'm sure, just help people understand what you're trying to communicate Absolutely. when you're standing in front and of an orchestra. We cannot leave this, this particular discussion uh, not also acknowledging and understanding how powerful the musicians' attitudes and body language and um, uh, words and ideas were in helping me grow as a conductor because they helped me, they showed me how they wanted to be conducted. Mm. 
don't underestimate that. Uh, we put so much pressure on us being the conductor. But actually, when you let go and you trust, that's how you get the best out of your pianist. Yeah. Or your orchestra. Okay. So you learn as much from them as they learn from you? Uh, uh, I, I personally have learned more from them than I've learned from myself. Okay. Because trusting is a huge step for a person. It's the final step of love. You can't trust someone if you haven't learned to love the idea of trust or the person you're trusting. So it's, it's the ultimate test. If you're willing to abdicate your own responsibility and put your trust in other people, that's not letting yourself down. That's rising to a new level of, of what it takes in life to make things happen. I love it. I love it. And it, it means that you need to know your shit so much mm. that you're willing to let go and trust other people. So you've had your first concert series with the orchestra. Yeah, just last month. And I think that went really well, didn't it? It had this great, great moments, and it exceeded actually my expectations. The players were were stronger than I expected, dared believe. You know, it, it was a transformative. So we did concerts at Cadogan Hall, at, at Oxford Sheldonian Theatre, and at Stoke-on-Trent in Victoria Hall. And that was our first. We played the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. We played Prokofiev's second violin concerto with Stephanie Gonley on the violin. And we started the concert with uh, James Macmillan's Confession of Isabel Gaudi. So a very challenging program. Very challenging program. And you were, you were telling me earlier before we started recording that you uh, conducted the Bartok without music. Against, against my teacher's <laughs> advice. And you got the same sense of freedom when you when you performed without the music, like without when you, a doubt. Because yeah. you know, who are you kidding? Uh, aren't the orchestra supposed to look at the conductor? Isn't that the yeah, aim? That is the aim. Okay. Well, what kind of a conductor are you if you're demanding that everyone looks at you, but your eyes are glued in the score? That's an interesting point, isn't it? It works both ways. Yeah. If you're not willing to release, why should you expect everyone else to release their fear? Okay, so, uh, and I know it worked because for three days I was stuck to the music. And then on the last day before our first concert, I turned to the leader, Flora, and said, I'm conducting the Bartok from memory. And her face went green. I said, I don't care if I bring the whole orchestra down. It's my orchestra. <laughs> 70 people have come together, many of them from abroad. All the expense, I was willing to let go of that on one selfish point of integrity. And, and, and people will say, isn't that selfish? That you're placing your own sense of doing right above the welfare of the whole orchestra? What if it fails? Integrity, when you have it, it doesn't fail. You, it, and, and there and then, I put the score, and I didn't just leave it, I put it, I closed it and put it far away that I couldn't go to it. And I conducted the Bartok from memory for the first time on that Thursday. That night, I woke up at 2 o'clock at night, 
tell Shermin, I mean, she will tell you, I honestly thought I was having a heart attack. That's how horrible I felt. The dress rehearsal on the Friday, I was a, a knot. But as soon as I walked on stage, it was like every flute recital I've given. Look because you, cause you have to be with the moment so intensely, otherwise you fall. That's what playing from memory. You have to be with the moment, live it so intensely that the next moment becomes inevitable. You, you have no time for self-doubt. You're just living it again. And that takes over. I've done it for 40, 30, well, no, memory, for 25 years. Um, I know my response to it. I don't know what it does for me. And I know that sometimes I make mistakes. I know all that. So I, I was like a fish to water. And what was the feedback from the orchestra? The same, because they were looking at me. They were smiling at me. Mm. In the performance, there was interaction. You don't think that encouraged me? Mm. And of course, once you release, it's like a, it's like a contagious energy. Everyone starts to release and then everyone gives their positive energy to everyone else. It's like a bug, a positive bug that catches. And of course, the negative side of that exists too. So lack of confidence, fear. Once that takes root, we spread that to our colleagues. You know, So once you liberate yourself, that's what you're giving to people. Whether it's a pianist or an orchestra, it's the same. Whether it's your daughter or... or or, or a conversation you're having with someone. It's the same. So it's, well, it all sounds incredible. What are your plans for the orchestra now? Well, the plans now have I've hit back uh, the ground again after the high of the tour. We have to get our charity number uh, because fundraising on a serious level can't really happen until that. Uh, so we're having to take a risk now and say the next tour is January 2019. Mm -hmm. um, by then, we are very confident that we can we can get our finances together again and build the next project. The, the aim of the orchestra is to have three tours a year, uh, at least. Uh, and we do want to tour abroad as well. Uh, I think a lot of the opportunities, the funding opportunities, will come with the touring, actually, mm -hmm. abroad. And are you already thinking about repertoire? Are you studying the repertoire? Uh, we've launched a competition at Trinity for a composer to, to a commissioned piece. How exciting. So that we'll start judging that next month in June. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know when this is coming out, but uh, in June we'll, we'll be deciding on the person to write a piece. Uh, I want to also, because I'm Lebanese, I want to encourage Middle Eastern soloists mm -hmm. and composers uh, and also when we tour abroad to, to introduce English music to, to the Middle East. So that's quite an important part of the, of the character of the orchestra, uh, is that side of commissions and new music. And I would love to conduct Beethoven 7. So that's the big piece for us in January, probably. Very exciting. I'm really into Mahler. And, uh, yes, it's a Beethoven, wow. I can't wait. Mala might be slightly more difficult because it's so much longer. Nah, <laughs> you know, sometimes when you pick up the flute and you play for five minutes, that's more daunting than playing for an hour and a half. Because when you're playing for a recital, you have time to settle. Five minutes, you're, hot, you're, you're still equalizing with your adrenaline. It can sometimes yeah. be harder. Mm -hmm.
so I'm sorry to contradict you. No, no, that's fine. Good people say, yeah, but you you memorize a whole recital. That's different to memorizing, say, the Dutier on its own. The difference between 60 minutes of music and 10 minutes is not um, 600% more. It, 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 it's just because the big, cha the, the big challenge is to have the guts to do one thing. Yes. It's like walking. Mm. Once you can walk, you can, you can actually go to Cumbria and walk yeah. a fell. Yeah. You don't have to go from 10 steps to 20. Once you walk, you can walk to the shops, you can walk to your grandmother's, you, you can walk. The hurdle is a psychological hurdle. Mm. Yeah, that, well, it's all very exciting. Now, that's obviously a big part of what you're doing at the moment. Yeah, but what it about is. your flute playing? The flute playing is my, like I say, is my old friend. If without my old friend, I'm 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 without my closest partner. Um, uh, the orchestra is an extension of my love, but the flute is the core of my love. So you're still giving recitals? Yes, still less than before, uh, but 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 yes, I'm I'm working up the Cachaturian to play in Mexico in July. There are three flute courses that I'll be giving recitals at the NFA. I'll be at at the BFS. I'll be I'm writing a new piece uh, in honor of Eva Kingma, who made my f yes. the Kingma system yes. flute. I play on a Brannan Brannan uh, Kingma's quarter mm -hmm. tone flute. So I'm writing a piece to honor, because she's getting a Lifetime Achievement Award this year. So I'm writing a piece called Future Blossoms uh, for her. I haven't started a note yet. <laughs> so that's another challenge to overcome before, really before July, I've got to write that down. That's going to be a busy few months for you. Yeah. yeah. That's how you like it. Yes. So I'm, I'm kind of leaning on some repertoire that I know while other things are, yeah. Yeah. I'm relearning the Feld Sonata, which I love, and uh, playing the Bowen, which uh, I love. And hopefully a new piece will be coming forth soon. Wonderful. So we've got a few little questions for you that I've been asking other uh, guests on Talking Flutes. Okay. Um, so what musicians have inspired you? Um, the truthful answer is I'm inspired by life rather than musicians. I'm inspired by feelings. If you like, I'm a sensualist. Whatever I, whatever I respond to with my heart and lights me up, that's my inspiration. Is there any one person that, you, if you could go and hear anybody in a live recital now, not flute players, anybody, uh, anyone that you would just okay. say, alive or dead? I was thinking of that. Um, I've always been fiercely independent. Um, as a flute player, I've protected that almost too much, almost to a fault. But actually, it's also part of what created my personality as a player, so I have to acknowledge that. I've always uh, consciously avoided the flute players that I was drawn to. I, I kind of instinctively felt that to spend too much time with them I would wind up copying their mannerisms yes. or their... Which is understandable, isn't it? Yeah, I, I've, so I've consciously stayed away from mm. the very big personalities. Mm -hmm. Jean-Pierre Rampal, Wib, Jimmy. I've consciously... I've known them and loved them and, and respected them, but actually 
on purpose didn't allow myself to drown in their world because I've maybe it's a bit too selfish. For, what about non-flute players? With non-flute players, I find it easier. I've mentioned Claudio Abado. Mm. He is my conducting god. Mm. I find it easier because it's a more objective way of making music. It's not really, because you, you, you do need to love the people you're conducting. Um, but the flute is so intensely me and goes f so far back and so far connected with the breath. Um, I find that uh, harder to, to, to let go of. Okay. Um, Favourite genre of music? Honest music. Right. And what about uh, the hardest flute piece you've played? Baba Black Sheep <laughs> and the Khachaturian. Actually, the Depending on the time when you played it. <laughs> well, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. I find so some things that's should be very difficult, laughably easy, and I find sometimes the simplest things very, very, very difficult mm. to come to terms with. And I think that duality exists in everything we do. So I, I don't think, think in terms that yeah. I don't think in terms of. So what? Um, let's talk about memorable moments. Do you have a most memorable moment playing the flute? Just picking, picking uh, things. I remember my recording of the Khachaturian right in the middle of that very fast semi-quaver passage that there's no place to breathe in in the last movement. And um, we had booked uh, three or four days of sessions in, in, in Kiev, which then Naxos came because the orchestra had an ongoing relationship with Naxos they took one of our sessions away so we had to reorganize our sessions and I wound up recording the Khachaturian before the concert we gave which was scary so we had we recorded the Khachaturian on an afternoon evening the whole thing and uh, their sessions are four hour sessions in Kiev so we recorded the whole of the Khachaturian in four hours that's incredible. With and we had a four-hour session left in that in the evening. Uh, so I said, "Sorry, uh, I'm going to be a bit tough on you. I'm going to ask you to come back, and we're going to play through the Khachaturian one last time. And that's all. And you can have the evening off." And so they said, "Okay," and we did that. And in that last movement, the conductor stopped conducting, and there was just a big smile on his face. And the whole orchestra was just on fire. And that's a moment where it's, you're on a different plane. And it's like the music is playing itself. You're no longer pushing and blowing. It's just something takes over. Uh, another experience is after a recital with a harp in, in Bahrain, many, many years ago, someone I never met gave a piece of paper that was passed on to me in the dressing room and said, thank you for tonight's concert. I've had a problem breathing and somehow tonight I could breathe. I never met the person. And uh, those are moments that, that, that make you... That stay in your heart. Yeah, stay in your heart and uh, get, remind you of the intensity of, um, 
of what, what we want. And the influence you have on people listening. Well, that's, yeah, I suppose that happens too. Yeah. So, how do you prepare for a flute recital? Do you have a set routine? Yeah. What do you do? My routine isn't a daily routine. So, my routine is, it revolves about memorizing. So, I don't start with a set of warm ups and scales. For me, a warm up is the time it takes to memorize the cycle it takes to memorize and find my power for a recital. So my cycle of is probably a month long. So I start from not being able to play a piece and then each I build on each day longer, longer spans of concentration until I can get through a piece. Um, so uh, that's my cycle of work. I don't expect to have the, the sound that I want when I can't play the notes doesn't add up because my my whole body is out of balance until I know what's coming and I can feel the, the, the rhythm organically in my body so I wait for that to happen so the sound that I'm after comes as a result of the memory so I don't build up my sound day by day with a series of exercises it is the culmination of the exercise of memorizing that I find my sound yeah Okay. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've been given by whom? Do you remember? Yeah, it was given to me by Trevor uh, as, a, as a bit of a joke with a twist to it, as you know, Trevor's humour always has a, a twist to it. Uh, we were at the Moise's last flute course in Bosville. Yeah. Uh, you were there. I was there too. And I was down to, to, to play to, to the great flute mm -hmm. player. And um, he was sick because you know, he had one lung and yeah. just so poorly. And Danino took over and I wound up playing to Danino. And for me, that was a slap in the face. I built myself up to play to the legend. And then I played to the hanger-on. I couldn't. I, I, I felt so, so let down. Yes. And Trevor, of course, saw that. Mm. I was never that close to Trevor. He was always surrounded by... Anyway, uh, I, I was close to him in, in some ways, but couldn't get close to him as a person. But he connected to me that day. And he picked up on my anger in the class. And he reached into his bag, tore out a piece of paper, and wrote two lines on it and passed to me and on that it said better to be the head of a dog than the tail of a lion and that to me was the biggest lesson I learned from Trevor in four years mm -hmm. in emotional terms yes, emotional. so for me better to be the head of a dog than the tail of a glorious lion so better to think for yourself than to hang on to energy that is great. So I tell my students always, you know, write your own paragraph. Don't read a thousand books, but write your own paragraph. But it resonated with you. It that resonated time. to me because yeah. that's uh, that's how I've lived my life. I think. Yeah. That's wonderful. What ambitions do you have left? None. So. 
everything ended tomorrow? No, that is one of those trick questions. Because without ambition, we sag. But also ambition in its own sake can be a source of unbelievable stress and, and uh, anxiety. And uh, I've, I think I'm softening with time and um, I need aims. Uh, but ambition and competition and, and a drive for its own sake, I've let go of. Uh, but wherever love can grow, I'm following it. And if you couldn't play the flute, what would you do? I'd probably be a courier. A I courier. love motorbikes. So for me, I love motorbikes. I, I just love it. I just love the sense of the wheels, the balance. And I relax when I'm on a motorbike. I love the speed. I love the, the grace when you hit a corner just at the right speed. Sounds I dangerous. Very, I love the danger. I've, Have you had accidents? I've had. That's why I've had two knee operations. For a motorbike from, accident? From a motorbike accident that happened 25 years oh, ago. Oh, heck. Dangerous things. Yeah. And what's... what's like memory. Yeah. <laughs> and what type of bike do you, do you I, ride? I, recent, well, I had recently had a bike stolen. Oh, dear. And I decided, okay, that's probably going to be my last, last bike. So I have a glorious BMW adventure. Glorious <laughs> machine. So would you say that's your hobby? Yeah. Or do you have other do you have another hobby besides riding your bike? Look, for some people playing the flute is a hobby, but it's their biggest passion in life. Mm. So uh, uh, for some reason hobby wakes up like second thing you do in in, in life. Uh, and it's, I don't like that because uh, for some people the hobby uh, you can almost disrespect people for having a hobby as a flute player. But actually, they have more love in them than many professionals. Okay, I get all that. So what do you do to relax? Uh, sometimes to play the flute now. Mm -hmm. Sometimes to walk my dog. Sometimes... Uh, so what sort of dog do you have? We have a cockapoo who's just irresistible. Called? Just, his name is Elvis. Elvis, the cockapoo. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so what other things could we ask you? Um, favorite country to visit? Uh, I, my mind doesn't work like that. You like lots of different countries. Uh, well, yeah, you can't categorize people and things and make lists. And life doesn't work like that. Mm, fair enough. Favorite food? Um, ask me what's good for me. No, 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 no. That's, some, that's something completely different. <laughs> So if you're at home and you've got to cook for yourself and you think, I'm going to cook just what I want to eat, what would it be? I can cook a very good Lebanese dish called Ma'lubet Arnabit, which is cauliflower fried with lamb and then uh, with lots of boiled with rice and garlic. And then you, so you, t you tip it upside down. It becomes like a cake, a savory cake. Mm. You have it with yogurt and with fried pine nuts. It's, very heavy, but delicious. Sounds wonderful. It's deli I'll cook it for you someday. Good. I'm looking forward to that. Okay. Yeah. Well, we sum it's been an absolute joy. <laughs> you know, I said uh, in it's our nice first. It's nice to reconnect. Sorry to, to reconnect, but you know, as I said, we'd known each other for 40 years. Um, my memories of you were of always this incredible player who moved people. Whatever you did, 
you move people. Always the playing has been inspirational. Um, and you've done so much more inspirational things throughout your career. That's it's been lovely to hear it, all about it. And I wish you all the luck in the future. And same to you and everyone listening. Thanks, Wissam. Okay. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to check out Wissam's website, which is wissambustani.com. W-I-S-S-A-M-B-O-U-S-T-A-N-Y.com for all his music and publication resources. So until next week, wishing you a musically fulfilling week ahead and may your low C be especially in June. Goodbye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.